It's an encouraging pastor y'all got. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to think of something encouraging to say back, but none of it's as good as his. Uh, no, very, very grateful for Thabiti. Thankful for this church. We pray for you guys regularly. It's a joy to be here. It was, we were here, I think, maybe five months after you guys started, and it's just really dope to see how the Lord has worked in your midst. Okay, Steve Harris, I see you. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I peek in online, and I still Thabiti sermons and sometimes use them at my church. And... So, you know, his influence is far-reaching. Um, I, I do seek to want to serve you well today, and the best way I can do that is to uh, pray and ask God to help me be of use to you, and I pray that you would join me uh, in that now. Let's, let's pray and ask God for help. Uh, Father, it, what a special Sunday uh, to reflect on your kindness. Great is your faithfulness. And we thank you for times where we get to reflect on that. Three years. And should the Lord Jesus tarry and you continue to provide life and opportunity, in 30 years, it'll be the same song. That you have been faithful. That to you belongs all glory. Father, I pray that you would... Help me to be useful to these, your people. Father, we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you got a Bible, go ahead and join me in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, One of the good things about anniversaries or birthdays or any kind of those annual moments is you do a reflection kind of thing. You reflect back on what has been. You look forward to what will be. And hopefully today, I just want to try to encourage us to think about one of the most basic aspects of what we are to do going forward. It has to be disciples, to live out our discipleship. We just want to faithfully follow Jesus. So what do I mean by discipleship? Since discipleship is actually not in the Bible, right? Disciple is in the Bible. Discipleship is not in the Bible. So what we mean by that is working out what you are, working out what you are, acting like a follower of Jesus, working out the fact that you're a disciple of Jesus is what we mean by discipleship. Uh, What does it mean for you to hold fast your confession, believing that he is faithful? Discipleship. And today, we want to do that, and it's not going to be a comprehensive message. It's just going to aim to encourage you and hopefully a couple fruitful efforts. Uh, I just want to encourage you to consider as maybe things you might want to strengthen. Thank God for a grace that he's given you in the past and pray for more fruit in this coming year. Again, working out who we are in Jesus, and we're taking up this question, how to do discipleship, uh, because it's a basic question that we often forget to think about and just want to you know, put our nose in the text and hopefully get some answers. Uh, Hebrews is a book that is particularly concerned with encouraging Christians to not give up. So in particular, it's speaking to Christians who are being tempted to abandon Jesus and go looking elsewhere for something else, something better, something more exciting. So persecution had come in and was tempting them to turn away. Sin had enticed them and was tempting them to redo the math and ask, is Jesus worth all of this? And if you've been walking with Jesus longer than a week, you know how that question works. Man, for real? (laughs) But the writers of Hebrews is writing them an apologetic, telling them, yes, he is. Yes, he is worth it. Yes, Jesus is better than anything you had or thought you had. You know, you'd be talking about the past, you'd be doing the math, but your math's wrong. So even, you remember the children of Israel, they was out in the wilderness talking about how dope slavery was. It's like, you ain't, you ain't remember that right. <laughs> right of Hebrews, yes, Jesus is better than anything you could ever think of. You really don't understand all that you have in Jesus. And then he tries to tease out the many excellencies that belong to those who are in Christ. Things like being in covenant relationship with God, whereby God promises to not hold your sins against you, to forgive you for all your sins, to remember your lawless deeds no more. Things like the fact that God himself comes to abide with you, in you, by his spirit, 
and promises to bring you into his rest. That at the end of this toilsome journey is an eternal, glorious rest. That he himself welcomes you to a throne of grace. You might could call your grandma or your father and mother. They might help you with bills, but we can all approach. And some of y'all don't got family to call when you need help with bills. I know what that's like. Uh, they're like, yeah, my grandparents helped me. I was like, I ain't got grandparents to help me. But I do have access to a throne of grace. And this throne of grace, the king on it has pledged to provide us with everything needful, grace and mercy to help in every time of need. Things like receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken and being brought to glory by a great champion, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, now what you comparing that to? Don't give up on that. This son who the writer of Hebrews wants to begin by saying is not a regular son, but a special son. He's the very radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. There's no being greater than Jesus. There's no leader greater than Jesus. There's no reality greater than being in Jesus. That's right, Rick, right? Rick, that's right. They were being tempted to conclude that Christianity was less impressive. It's not worth the sacrifice that the grass was greener on the other side. They were being tempted to not persevere, being tempted to just keep on sinning and ignore the consequences. Jesus had said he was coming back, and he ain't back yet. And as long as that happens, the temptation to doubt him increases. Maybe he's not coming back. Well, this is really where this text in Hebrews addresses us. And we'll just quickly read verse 19 to 25 just to give us a ramp up into our context. This meditation about what the gospel and its effects provides for the people of God. Hebrews chapter 10, quickly looking at verse 19. I'm going to go ahead and read it so we can all hear it. I just can't hear it, but I like it. You can read along with me. That's good stuff. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So you were outside of God, you were away from God, you were hostile to God, you were not near him, but Jesus acted so as to bring you close to reconcile you to the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who can help you in his body of flesh. Verse 21, he says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, not a regular priest who got sins himself, no, a sinless priest who ever lives above interceding for his people, since we have that kind of high priest, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, right? In Christ, we belong to God. God belongs to us, right? He is ours. We are his heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. You're positionally forgiven in Jesus. There's now no condemnation for anybody in Jesus. Verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For, as Pastor Thabiti worded it so well, he who promised is faithful. And you can hear in that verse, maybe, the concern. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. Do you see that? There's a concern that there's going to be a wavering. You have it, and you're going to be tempted to let it go, to throw it away, to waver from it, to stray from it. Your eye is going to get fixed on something you think is more shiny, more worthy, more worthwhile, and you're going to stray from it. He says, don't waver. Don't do that. Hold it fast. Cling to it without wavering. Because all he promised is sure. He who promised is faithful. And then he gives us instruction for how we can do that. How do we... Hold fast our confession without wavering. 
How do we walk by faith that he is faithful? And we find these two verses, and this is what we want to think about today. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. And it's very instructive just to see the connection this has both to our assurance and to coming judgment. So if you read the verses before like we just did, you get this based on the assurance that he provides in the gospel, you do. But if you kind of keep going right after verse 25, right, the activities that should be flowing from this sturdy assurance. But if you look over to verse 26 and 31, you see that it's almost like if you jump all over this this encouragement over this admonishment, you kind of fall into a, a hill of judgment. There's something special for us here, something that keeps us here. The path to, of deliberate disobedience ends in ruin. So as we're thinking through what it means to walk with Jesus, and I don't know if you're one of those people that when New Year's comes, say, what do I want to work on this year? Just want to recommend some meditation on this today and see if the Lord would have anything for you. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Is there, if there's any water in this building, I, will just, I don't know if we can get it from, but it's, it's going to start pouring in a couple seconds. Again, when we're saying discipleship, we're meaning holding fast, that confession of our hope without wavering, and we want to think about how to do that in view of these verses. So I have four points this morning. If you're a note taker, I'm not, but I hope it serves you. You get a, a reward for this, right? In the Bible, that's what it says, right? <laughs> if, I, if you had a towel, I'd take it. <laughs> I like that nobody's sitting here because this would be the drench zone. Four points this morning. The mind of discipleship. Point two, gathering for disciples. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> what else you got in them pockets, man? You, know <laughs> you got a bigger pulpit? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, um, point one. Sorry, y'all. Okay, point one. The mind of discipleship. Point two, gathering for discipleship. Point three, the act of discipleship. And point four, the perspective of discipleship. First, we'll consider the mind of discipleship. It's right there in verse 24. Those first few words, consider how to. We will not do what we do not mean to do. There's no such thing as accidental faithfulness. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure we have the mind of discipleship or the mind of discipling. Now, what we must get clear on the front end is that a local church is in view here. You see that? Let us consider how to stir up one another. One another, right? This is a clearly defined, reciprocated relationship. That's what a local church is. It's a family. And I like how the obedient church is. Welcome to our family, right? It's a cohort. It's an assembly. It's a res the, uh, an identification of those who are responsible for one another. One another's discipleship one another's love, one another's good works. And the writer of Hebrews wants there to be a mind among us, a consideration you're to have for everyone else in your church. That we want for them what God wants for them. That's one thing that knowing who the members in your church are, right? It kind of gives you targets to aim your consideration at. Our mind, our aim towards them is to serve their joy in Jesus being established, expanded, and sustained. So the writer here is concerned that we would be concerned with this goal for each other. And that's what you just got to ask yourself. Is that a frequent consideration of yours? Do you have time set aside to consider how you might provoke someone else to greater love and good works? Let us consider how to stir up. That's what that stir up means. It's to provoke, to stimulate one another to love and good works. This aspect of our discipleship, again, does not happen coincidentally or accidentally, but only intentionally. It's a byproduct of thinking about it. Scripture is true. Bad company ruins good morals. We all know that's true. 
But also note that godly company provokes love. Now, most of us, unfortunately, when we hear love, we immediately think of love for man. That's not a bad love to think of, as long as you appreciate that it is a subordinate love. I have no doubt that man is included in the fruits of this provocation. However, the chief object of love is God. The great commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like it. Love our neighbor as ourselves. The center of all other loves, so when you think I'm trying to stir up somebody to love, what you mean by love matters. The center of all other loves must be a love for God because it's only when we love God most that we love everything else right. The Lord Jesus told his disciples this in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There's a way you can love people more than God that disqualifies your God love. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, right? So when we consider how to stir up one another, it must be this kind of love, a love that loves Christ most. We are not after some humanitarian love, though Christians should be uh, leading the way in loving people. (laughs) But we are after a distinctly Christian love, a love that values and prizes Christ as our great treasure, worthy of sacrificing all other treasures for. It's a love above other loves. So when the writer says, consider how to provoke one another to love, the chief application, I think, is to stir up love for Christ. The reason I think that is that's what he's doing in this letter. Stirring up love for Christ because that's the great fountainhead from which all other love pours. The more richly someone loves Jesus. And look, if you're married, you know this. You don't matter how cute or handsome they are. When you're in a conflict at 1 a.m., you really want to see Jesus. (laughs) Just really need you to love the Lord right now. That's what I want to see. I need a a love for Christ most, right? (laughs) The more richly someone loves Jesus, the more rightly they will love everyone and everything else. And conversely, the more lightly someone loves Jesus, the more wrongly they will love everyone and everything else. We're called to consider, to carefully think on, to give our minds to, processing how we can serve each other's love for Jesus. But this is not merely love in theory. It's love lived out. It's love and good works. Uh, The love and good works that I think we're being called to here have the glory of God as their aim. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. This isn't an apostle thing. This is a Christian thing, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Why? So that you won't boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a relationship between why he saved you and what you're supposed to do and what the byproduct of what you're supposed to do brings praise to him. We don't do works for our boasting, but for his. Works that boast in God, not in man. Uh, The ecosystem of salvation is designed so that the works Christians do give glory to God and not to man. Everything from the initiative to the substance to the execution to the performance of it, everything from a God-wrought work is so dependent on Christ. It's so necessary that those doing it are alive in Christ so that it reserves all praise and glory to him. The Christian's good works are supposed to preach. They're supposed to preach. They're supposed to point people to God for God to get maximum glory for them. That is their design. And we know that because that is our design, that we give glory to God. Uh, The difference between a silent good work and a preaching good work, I think, 
uh, rests on why the good work is done. This goes back to love. Love fueling a good work. The Christian does things on purpose, fueled by a love for Christ, so that God will be glorified. An example is this. So it's one thing to not be a complaining person. You know, you go with the punches. Hard to ruffle your feathers. You never get angry. Perhaps you're not expressive. Maybe you're just an introvert and you're really screaming on the inside and nobody knows. Maybe it's just adaptable. You know what I'm saying? Things just don't bother you that much. You're more carefree. So then for that person, not complaining may seem like a good work, but it really might not be a God-glorifying good work. It's not a work that preaches. If it's just something you naturally do. However, if you choose not to complain or grumble on purpose because you are trusting that God has sovereignly orchestrated the unpleasant situation you are at in work or in car in the traffic, or if your body is riddled with an ailment or disease or any variety of kinds of trial, you acknowledge that the Lord has put you there And so you're choosing not to complain so that what's fueling you not grumbling or complaining is a love for Christ and a trusting his sovereign rule over your life in that moment. Well, that, my friends, is a light shining in a perverse and twisted generation. That is a good work that is preaching. We're to have lives that have good works that preach. And that doesn't mean you got to preach every time you do a good work. But, but it should mean that the God who sees hearts and who hears your thoughts should hear sermons as we live. This is what Paul was doing in his letters. He's stirring up the church to love Christ and then live good lives. He starts his letters with these accurate, lofty, glorious visions of Jesus and how deeply you are loved by him in the gospel. And then he starts provoking that love to action. Church, love each other this way. Husbands, you know how much Jesus loved you? That's how you love your wife. Wife, you know that the the glory of a church is to submit to her husband? That's That's how you submit to yours. Single people, you undistracted. Be fully devoted to Jesus. Christians, how they love their neighbors. Parents, how they love their children. Even children, how they love their parents. This love in action is rooted in a love towards God. But it all starts with a clear focus on the love of Christ in the gospel because it's only from that fountain that the church can rightly love anybody. 1 Peter 2, he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you might proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is what a church is supposed to be about and every member therein. Loving Christ and living out what that love means through intentional efforts to glorify God. The work of the saints is to invest effort and thought in how to stir each other up in this cruciformed love, this Christ-like love, this gospelly love that makes us do a bunch of really good things for God's glory. So as you think this week or as you talk to your spouse or as you talk to your friend or as you talk over lunch, how are you thinking about provoking your brothers and sisters to loving Christ more deeply and living more faithfully in light of that love? Anytime you counsel somebody and they're in unrepentant sin or they're entangled in sin or they're sinning in any kind of way, it's always because their mind is off the gospel. It's always because they're not thinking of Jesus rightly. And that's where you always start, right? You say, let me tell you, oh, you sound like you're not thinking about Jesus. Let me help you think about Jesus. And you sound just like the writer of Hebrews. 
And you try to draw their attention on how wonderful he is, how wonderful you've been loved in him. And you say, now you should be doing something different because of that. How might I provoke my brothers and sisters to love Christ more dearly, to know him more deeply, to praise him more richly, to obey him more willingly, to trust him more fully, to be satisfied in him more contently, to take him more seriously, to share him more boldly, to cling to him steadfastly, to wait on him more eagerly, and to live like all that is always true all the time. Consider how you can do that for others. Second point is gathering for discipleship. We don't just consider how to provoke one another to love and good works. We get together and do that, like we're doing today, meeting together. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, what's interesting is that this word for meet together is where we get the word synagogue. So the writer of Hebrews, it seems, is seizing this idea of the centrality of their formal gathering for worship and edification and say, do not make a habit out of not being there. Not neglecting to church together. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is not saying is that meeting together is the habit of some. I used to think that. <laughs> I used to be like, okay, well, I don't get it. But, um, you know, he's not saying meeting together is the habit of some. He says some have a habit of not meeting together. See, joining a church and being present was the habit of all. But there was some in their day who were neglecting this essential practice. This is why we must talk and continue to keep talking about the contradiction of someone professing to be a Christian yet neglecting to join a church when they can. Personal autonomy is antithetical to Christianity. Friends, it's not okay for someone to profess to be a Christian and then have the ability to be a member of a true church and then choose not to. Because in that, they're choosing to pattern their lives, to habit their lives against God's word. We understand that to be sin when we pattern ourselves against God's word. That's why if, if someone professes to be a Christian and joins your church, and then they kind of start making a habit of not being here, neglecting, you seen, you seen sister so-and-so? I ain't seen her in a few weeks. You seen brother so-and-so? Nah, I ain't seen him either. But we have every right to question their, their claim in that sense. They're not holding fast their profession without wavering. Because while they profess to love God, you might live like they don't. Live content, not caring if they worship God how he's said to be worshipped. Or to love God's people the way that he's called them to. And that person should have no assurance that they know Jesus. So if you know someone who professes to be a Christian and has made a habit out of not churching, I don't mean just attending a church, but connecting with the church, joining the church, being a part of a church. And I ain't talking about somebody who's looking for a church. I'm somebody who's looking to not be looking for a church. <laughs> Whose habit is to be independent from a local church. Those who are meant to provoke them to love and good works. Those who isolate themselves from that, that stewardship of provocation. If you know somebody, you should call them to repentance. There's church hurt, and that needs to be worked through, and you have very gentle and patient pastors to encourage them to talk to. But friends, do not make provision for sin. It's a danger to their soul. That's something to grieve over, to mourn at, something to repent of, that we can think so little of Jesus, so little of his people, that we don't care what he says or thinks about it. So have such a habit is opposed to true discipleship because if our aim is to encourage each other, when we don't come to church, we actually discourage each other. It's the opposite of what's supposed to be happening. And take this for what it is. I, I say this whenever I get to talk to church plants. I try to make a note for this because it's normally true. If you have a habit of being late to come to the gathering, I ain't I looking at nobody. That's discouraging. It's particularly discouraging to your pastors. I, I'm, I pastor a very small church plant, and you know, our church is so small, we kind of know when everybody's not at the table. We got six seats, and if one by person's missing, we see the empty chair. I thought that was my kid. I was like, okay, no well. Uh, your pastors have labored over you in prayer. 
labored over you in the word. They don't waste words here. Each word is intended to provoke you to love and good works. And when you don't have enough regular respect to at least be here on time, it's discouraging. It's a simple way you can encourage more people. Be here on time. If you think, man, what's a big way I can encourage a bunch of people? You can just be here when church starts. <laughs> That's right, it's mad encouraging. You know what I mean? Because when you're here and we're here and you're not here, we're like, are we the crazy ones? Are we the only ones who thinks gathering is important? Or that Jesus has said something about it? Or that this is the worship of God? Friends, it's an it's a easy way to, so when you go, when you're getting ready Saturday night, you need to consider how tomorrow morning you're going to stir up people to love and good works. And you know what happens when people see you on time? They're encouraged. You made it too? Me too. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Let's encourage you. We not crazy. I ain't crazy. You not crazy. I'm here too. Please take that in love, church. Please take that in love. Again, if that's something you struggle with, it's, that's something you need to identify as, I think it's a sin issue uh, on a variety of categories. And it's a very simple thing to do. Keep forth with fruit of repentance. Just be here on time. And if you're like me and you always do math wrong, you get here early and you'll be on time. <laughs> Again, to be a member of a church and show up whenever you feel like it, it's not other-centered. It doesn't make your pastor's labor a joy. It brings about groaning, of worry. Where are they at? How are they doing? Why aren't they here? Uh, J.C. Ryle, now I can get behind him so y'all can throw all the stuff at him. Uh, J.C. Ryle, with an encouragement from this verse, says, We shall all do well to remember the charge. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Before I even read this, historically, we're in a weird place where Christians just don't care about coming to church. I know some people don't go to church so they can go to the beach. And I'm just saying, across the world, that is just unfathomable because of what this is. It doesn't always feel like what this actually is, but it always is what it actually is. Sometimes, you know, speakers be breaking, you forgetting the words. He's always going to preach a good sermon, but, you know, sometimes you'll get a me, and it'll be a less than par sermon. You got to put up with stuff, and you won't feel the sweetness of what it actually is. We don't come here by feelings. We live by faith. This, listen to what J.C. says. Oh, boy, J.C. J.C. Rao. This isn't Jesus Christ, but J.C. Rao. <laughs> Kids be getting cool talking about Jesus. Oh, J and J.C., um, we shall all do well to remember the charge, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Never to be absent from God's house on Sundays, without good reason. Never to miss the Lord's Supper when administered in our own congregation. Never to let our place be empty when means of grace are going on. This is one way to be a growing and prosperous Christian. The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word in season for your soul. The very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away may be the very gathering that would have cheered and established and quickened our hearts. We little know how dependent our spiritual health is on little, regular, habitual helps and how much we suffer if we miss our medicine. And you know, sometimes you be on a struggle bus in soul, you be dry than a mug. You be coming to church. It's been a couple months you come to church. And then just one day, one day it hits you. One day as you've been drawing near to him, he overwhelms you by drawing near to you. Endurance by faith. It's the name of the game. If our aim is to encourage each other, neglecting to meet together is the opposite of that. Neglecting to be a church together is the opposite of meeting together. The writer says loudly and clearly, don't be, do that and don't be fooled by bad examples of people who profess to be Christians and yet do that. He knows that they're there, right? As is the habit of some. Ain't nothing new, right? Ain't nothing new in our church, right? <laughs> but, you know he, know, he knows who you are. As is the habit. Don't be like them. 
If you see somebody who's not regular here, don't be like them. So that's the negative part here, right? Okay? Not neglecting to church together. And the positive comes right next, right? Verse, I mean, verse three. Number three, the act of discipleship. He says, by encouraging one another. Not neglecting to church, but encouraging. Encouraging one another. What does it mean to be an encouragement to other Christians? It's to give support. It's to give help. It's to give comfort. It's to give correction. It's to build up each other's faith in whatever ways are needed. It's to actually do things connected to supporting and encouraging your brothers and sisters in following Jesus. Before Jesus, I know something about everybody in here. Before Jesus, you was all about you. I was all about me. But you weren't made for you. You were not made for you. You were made for someone else. Everything about you was designed and created, called into being to be devoted to someone else. Made to bear someone else's image. Made to abide in someone else's word. Made to give praise to someone else. We were hostile to God, hostile with each other. This is how Titus paints it. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. And this is how the Bible categorizes that. It's not just like another way to live. That joint is foolishness, disobedient, being led astray, slavery to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when... The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. You was not dope when he saved you. You wasn't even close to dope when he saved you. No, he he picked while you were hostile, fists up, growling the voice, taking the earrings off. But what happened? Goodness and loving kindness appeared through a savior and he saved us. He could just showed up and saved him, but he saved us. He saved us, not because of what you did, but according to his own mercy. That's what it means for you to be bought, right? When it had nothing to do with you, but it was all on the other person. Not for nothing you did, but his own mercy. He washed you with the washing of regeneration, renewed you by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on you richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, you might become an heir according to the hope of eternal life. He says the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Watch this. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Don't nothing help us live right like thinking about how much we've been loved. And nothing has us stray further than when we're forgetting how much we've been loved. Someone asked Luther, why you preach the gospel every week? He said, because you forget it every week. Right, if these, you remember that list in Peter about those qualities were to supplement our faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge, self-control. The end of the list, he says, these qualities should be yours and increasing, and if they're, what do they do? They keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful, right? He says, because if anybody is, something happened to them. They become so nearsighted that they've been blind that they got saved. And the writer of Hebrews is like, be a gospel church, church filled by the goodness and loving kindness of God. And when somebody knows that they've been forgiven much, they're the dopest people to be around. They're the most encouraging people to be around. They're the most forgiving people to be around. They're the most joyful people to be around. They're the most generous people to be around. They're the most helpful people to be around. They're the most evangelizing people to be around. They're the most sharing people to be around. He says... Yo, church, be divinely, you've been divinely enabled to live for God's glory, for the good of others in him. So be about that. Think about that. Plot about that. Consider how to do it. Devote yourself to it. Get busy doing it. But encourage one another. Is one of your aims this year just to be dope at encouraging? I'm overusing dope. 
is one of your... Sorry, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> Karen was looking at me like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> is one of your goals this year to be... <laughs> I get my Thabiti voice. <laughs> right. um, is one of your goals to be... God has redeemed you. This is, this is ridiculous. I'm sorry. Um, real question, though. Uh, is one of your goals to be excelling and encouraging? That you, you are going to be an encouraging person in the church. Because you know what's true about everybody around you? Ain't nobody over-encouraged. You've never encouraged someone to the point where they throw up from being full of it. But what's the experience? It's more like when you pour water on that dry plant and it just drinks all the water up quickly. You're like, danger. You pour a little bit more, it's just gone. It just keeps going. It's like, you're so dry. We're regularly discouraged because we regularly sin. We regularly fall short. We begin to late on church and then the preacher talks about us. And I'm actually trying to encourage you. <laughs> Friends, you read the Bible and you read it quickly or slowly and you come through thousands of ways to be encouraging. Encouraging looks like exhorting. Remember early in Hebrews, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's not a Christian on the planet who does not need to be daily exhorted, put that down. So you can do that daily. You ain't got to know the person. You can literally call any member in this church and say, hey, don't play with it. I don't know what it is, but just trust me. Like, because <laughs> I know you like me. I know you're like me. And the Bible says we need to be exhorted another every day. Now, in the Greek, you know, that means every day. Every day. Listen. Bible's full of really simple stuff that's actually hard to do if you do it. Encouraging looks like serving. Uh, and I heard uh, Pastor Dabiti, I just want to double click on something he said. Brothers, whenever he's saying the sisters are the only ones serving, you have opportunity. Wait, 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 hold on. <laughs> See? <laughs> See? <laughs> Somebody like, get him. Now, like, <laughs> I don't know if that's encouraging. Uh, <laughs> No, brothers, what you should hear in that is an opportunity to be an encouragement. Oh, snap. We're we giving the impression we ain't here. Let me, hold on, let me consider how to serve, how to stir up, up in this piece, make room for me. Galatians 5, 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, no pun intended, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Friends, there's very few of us who out, like overdo the serving. Some people need to go take a nap. That's true. But there's very few of us who are using our freedoms to serve too much. Encouraging looks like teaching. When you guys get together, bring them Bibles out. Right? Colossians 3.16. Talking to a church, how to encourage each other. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Look, you ain't got no word. It's going to be hard for you to be an encouragement. I'm going to need you to come with that word, though. But if you have the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, then when you come up on me and I'm, I'm discouraged or I'm tripping, you're going to have a word from God's word to apply to me. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Encouraging looks like singing. Ephesians 5, 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I don't care if your voice is horrible. You can encourage people and sing. And not just here. Also, when y'all get together, sing to the Lord. Get your little couple hymnals. You know what I'm saying? Or get your little, you know, your, get your, your phones out. Say, we pick songs that y'all can do well. You know what I mean? Don't be, you know, if you can't sing, you pick the easy ones, right? But address one another. Address one another. It's what the Bible says encourages us. 
You be getting caught up in singing. I was like, uh, praises be to the king. I haven't sang that song in a minute. But it's just encouraging to think about how mighty my king is and that he's omnipotent and that all praise and glory and honor is going to him. Encouraging looks like forgiving. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgave you. Is there anything more discouraging than feeling unforgiven? Flip side, though, is there anything more encouraging than experiencing pardon, experiencing forgiveness, being reminded how much you're loved, despite how rugged and raggedy you are? That's what we do when we forgive. And because we sin a lot, it's one of our greatest opportunities as a church is to forgive each other. This is what breathes air into a marriage. When both parties are eager to encourage each other through that grace of forgiveness. Look, the Bible is filled with thoughtful ways of encouraging each other in Jesus. Search the word. You find a world of opportunity to be an encouragement to others in this church for Christ's sake. You can encourage people with your example. Again, you want to be one of those people that is just, you just know you're going to be there. When the church gathers, you know. You know Brother Reggie going to be there. There's a brother, uh, Reggie, at my, my old church, and uh, he was an older man, and he had, you know, he had got acquainted with all the vanity stuff he used to do, and he would just be walking around the church, and he would just encourage people. He was at everything, and he'd walk up, he'd be like, hey, Brian, how you doing? You start talking, and he'd just cut you off. He said, Brian, you know, I love my wife. He'd be like, okay, where's this going? And, and he'd be like, he'd be like Brian, I want to go. He said, I want to go to heaven and be with Jesus. He said, I just want to go to heaven and be with Jesus. He said, Brian, Jesus loves you so much. He loves you. And he would just walk away. And he used to know with everybody. And used, everywhere he went, there'd just be people crying. <laughs> His example was so encouraging. We had a, a young family in our church. And they had a, a, a young daughter who had uh, physical uh, disease. She was, had severe eczema. And then on top of that, there was an unknown allergy she had. So she would just kind of scratch her face off nonstop, always kind of ripping her flesh off, just bleeding nonstop. <laughs> And we were, we were talking with her, and uh, she was just like, you know, but she'd be coming to church, and she was like, you know what, it is a hard season to come to church. But what was most encouraging about it was not that it's, it, was, it wasn't hard. It's okay for things to be hard. There's seasons where it's just going to be hard. What was encouraging is that she still came. She came. She was coming by faith. By faith, she had discerned the worthiness of Jesus out of obedience to her Lord. She came struggling. It was her habit, by faith, to be with the people of God. And though she may not have always felt encouraged, she was always encouraging. All of us be coming to church on Sunday limping. Bruised from our own sin, perhaps from the sin of others, discouraged, and we need to be regularly encouraged. Regularly reminded that it gets better in glory, and you're going to make it. Amen. We need to be reminded. You've been prayed for so that your faith won't fail. We need to be regular. Hold fast. Don't give that up. What you're looking at is not worth it. You can encourage people with your words. Are you an encourager with your words? May your words be God's words. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Don't speak words that corrupt, right? Speak words that build up. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is your mouth devoted to encouragement? You can speak words that correct. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The person doesn't feel like it, but you are encouraging them. You can speak words that strengthen. Isaiah 54, he says, pray that the Lord God would give you the tongue of those who are taught. Old school, they say the tongue of the learned. That you may know 
Why does God want to put you through some stuff? So that when you talk, you may know how to sustain with a word others who are weary. Again, it could go on and on, and I'm, I'm, I'm going along here, so let's, again, you get it. Be an encouragement, please. Lastly, number four, the perspective of discipleship. Seeing things rightly related to that day. Verse 25, and he says, don't just do these things. Don't just consider how to stir one another up. Don't just not neglect to get together. Don't just be devoted to encouragement. Do it more as you see the day approaching. Uh, Matthew 25, I'll read it quickly. You probably know the story by heart. It's the story of 10 virgins who were waiting on the bridegroom. Hold on, my fingers are so sweaty. Okay, here we go. Listen to this. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. That means they set up their lamps. And the foolish said to the wives, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and you, you go to the corner store and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The, the parable of the uh, foolish virgins caught off guard is not simply a slap on the wrist like, man, why you ain't had some oil? You better go hurry up and get it. No, they get shut out. It reveals an entire lack of faith. It identifies those who quit on Christ, who shifted, who wavered from their hope. We all going to stumble with the hope, but we can't depart from the hope. Jude 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting, that's eagerly waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We're to be eagerly waiting. So, you know when you want to go somewhere and someone's picking you up to go there. Okay, now you know when that's happening and it's somewhere you don't want to go. This is what happens. They're like, I'm on my way. You're like, all right, cool, I'm getting ready. Lying. You're not getting ready. You're still asleep. And then they text you, yo, out front. You're like, I am about to be out. You start getting out of the bed. <laughs> then you start, oh, hold up. I'm just looking for my keys. And you're getting dressed. And then you finally come out. They're, they're working on their patience with the Lord. And you get in the car and you go where you got to go. And that's different than when you've been eager to go somewhere. You know, when you set the alarm clock four times just in case you sleep through the first one. When you, if you're married, you tell your, hey, make sure you say your alarm clock too. I don't want to miss this. Not only that, when the ride comes, you texting them. Yo, you on your way yet? They're like, yeah, I left 15 minutes. I'm going to be there in five. All right, cool. Two minutes later. Well, did you just call me? Nah. Okay. And what do you do? You looking out the window. You're like, is that them? That ain't them. Is that them? That ain't them. Is that them? That ain't, that, oh, that ain't them. Stuff's packed, ready to go. One hand on it, ready to go outside. Eagerly waiting to leave. That's the Christian posture. Eager for him to come get us out of here. And when Jesus comes, he comes with salvation and judgment. Judgment for fools. And so the eagerness is, I ain't trying to be caught sleeping. I'm not trying to be caught asleep, drowsy, without the oil. It's for those with faith. Hebrews goes on to say, we are not those who have shrink back and been destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls, which isn't you by works. It's you trusting that he's going to be faithful. The temptation to sin and depart from Jesus is always an accusation about the truthfulness of his word. It's saying he's not as holy as he is, but he is. That you won't surely die, but you will. That Jesus isn't coming back, but he is. And that those who are waiting are those despised, but they're not. 
We're going to a kingdom that can't be shaken. We have an inheritance being kept for us, pure, undefiled, unfading. I'm going to a heavenly city. I'm going to see the Lord face to face. I'll be purged from all my sin, raised body and soul. It's no surprise here that in this Hebrews passage, there's those two sides he goes on to explaining. You guys watch that day. It's perfectly appropriate as you start thinking, I don't want to come to church. Start thinking, Jesus is coming back. And I want to be ready. Or as you're tempted to be a discouragement to others and Devote yourself to bad works, not good. You can think, yeah, but Jesus is coming back. Or what am I going to use my life for? What am I going to invest my mind, my resources, all that I am in? Career, getting a dope crib. There it is again. Or am I going to invest it in Christ? How to serve their love in Jesus and grow in good works. He's coming back. Luther said, I got two days on my calendar. Today and that day. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, but not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I would like to encourage you. One of the reasons Jesus has not come back yet is to give you an opportunity to repent. He doesn't desire you to perish. He doesn't desire that you be caught off guard. He desires that you, like all the rest of us, would turn from your sin, turn to Christ and trust in him. Not because you're not dirty, it's because you are dirty. Not because you're not a sinner, it's you're a big sinner. But Jesus loves sinners. He came for sinners, and on that cross, he gave his life to save sinners. Spurgeon said that the curtain was torn from the top to bottom so that big sinners and little sinners could fit through. <laughs> Jesus is not back today so that you would repent of your sin and not perish. So if you've been waiting, if you've been resisting, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. Decide to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. Because you can join all the rest of us. Rugged, jacked up, limping people who have a wonderful, glorious Savior and who are going to a wonderful, glorious kingdom that we did not earn, that we couldn't afford, but that we get in anyways. We don't see that last day and tone it down in our Christianity. When we think about that last day, we turn it up. The longer Christ takes to return, the more temptation there is for Christians to minimize the truthfulness of his promise to return. And here we're called to do it more as the day is approaching, to remind ourselves more, to sober ourselves more. What the Christian needs to be sustained while we wait is not ease or increase distance from the church, but increase clinging to Christ, increase frequency gathering with the saints, increase times of being reminded of the goodness of God in the gospel, increase encouragement to not throw away our confidence, which has great reward, increase encouragement to endure to the end, knowing that when we have done the will of God, we will receive what is promised, that we will be with him where he is with full joy. So friends, this year, even today, let it begin today, and let it begin with me. Let us consider how to stir one another up, to provoke each other, to love and good works, not neglecting to do this. And if that's your habit, it, let that habit in today, but encouraging one another, all the more as we see that day approaching. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for your spirit. We're grateful that you don't abandon us, but that you help us, you cause us to walk in your ways. We're grateful that you're clear, that you warn of us of what's bad for us, and you encourage us in what's good for us. Father, I pray if there's any here 
who have had a not sober perspective, that you would sober them by your grace. Pray if there's any here who are discouraged, that you encourage them with what's theirs in Christ and what they're capable of by your spirit. If there's any here that don't know you, Father, we pray that today would be the day that they get called from darkness into your marvelous light. That where they once were not your people, they become your people. Where they once did not have mercy, they would receive mercy. And join those people called to be your possession. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.